We're in chapter 2 in Paul's letter to the church in the city of Philippi, the letter to the Philippians. This is a well-known passage. We're going to cover verses 1 through 11 as we continue in Paul's letter this morning. Young Christians, young theologians, this may not seem like it has anything to do with the verses we'll read, but it does. What does your name mean? Ask your parents, why did they name you what they named you? What does it mean? Do they know the meaning of it? And then, what do you think? Does your name fit you or doesn't it fit you? And for the rest of us, the the whole sermon, though it wasn't planned this way, everything we're going to say in the sermon this morning is summarized in the liturgy of the word at the bottom of page 2. If you leave here and don't remember anything of what's said, which is a distinct possibility, you can always go back and remind yourself from the text in Isaiah 62 at the bottom of page 2. Or you can sing the song we just sang, and particularly verse 3. This is the good news of Jesus Christ as Paul writes it to the church confused and struggling, but fully loved by Jesus, the glorious groom. So, church, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests that are common to all, the interests of all others in the church. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, amen. Let's pray. And now, Lord Jesus, from these verses, teach us what it is to be the church and show us the church you lived and died and rose and ascended to give to yourself. Make of us the kind of church you deserve to have and give to us full and complete joy from it. And if you'll do all of this, you'll have our thanks. And we ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Three times, Paul says we are to be of one mind. Twice in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Be in full accord and of one mind. And then again in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. And that phrase, among yourselves, means in the church. But when you read Paul write in his letter, be of the same mind, be of one mind, have this mind together. 
it makes you want to ask, Paul, have you ever been a member of a church anywhere? Because that's not what the church looks like. That, that's nice, but that's just not how it goes. We wish it did, but it doesn't. It just doesn't. And maybe your problem, Paul, is that you plant churches and you stay in those churches for a while. And while you're with those churches, everyone is on their best behavior. But then you never stay in the church. You get to leave. You do drive-bys. And we have to stay behind. And we have to live together. And, and that, that's difficult. This is what the ideal church would look like. But a lot of us gave up on it a long time ago. And I always think reading Paul repeat three times, be of one mind, is like reading the bottom line on the eye chart when you sit for an eye exam. Can anyone actually make out what's written in that line? I always try. I'm up for the challenge. The last eye exam I sat for, it was a contest. I gave it a shot. And when I got to the bottom line, I realized I couldn't see anything, so I just named shapes. South America, Rorschach splotch, Eiffel Tower. Be of one mind, the text says, but as soon as you try it, you realize you're not even close. And you realize you don't really know what Paul is writing in these verses. And the real trouble of it is, if Paul says that having this same mindedness in the church would complete his joy, then it has to do the same for us. It would complete our joy too. On the island of Bermuda, there are the bones, the skeletal remains of a gorgeous church. The foundation is set. The bricks are stacked into walls. Stone arches are framed where the windows should be. Stone buttresses reach from wall to wall across the sky and they hint at a ceiling that never was. The only ceiling there now is the blue of the heavens and the white of the clouds drifting overhead. And the floor is lush green grass that grew into the structure from the forest around. It sits there hauntingly like some extinct beast caught in a tar pit ages ago. The building was supposed to be the new home of a congregation back in the 1800s. And in the middle of construction, there was a church fight. Nobody remembers what it was over. It was nothing important, of course, because it's forgotten now. And the church dissolved. The flock broke apart. And the new home was never built and completed. There seems to be an endless tide of visitors to the place to witness the church's failure. And there's almost a smug delight for those who are not friendly toward the church. It makes the church into a punchline. And for believers who visit the place, standing in this stone ribcage, there's a sorrow and a familiarity and a nagging fear that the same thing could happen back home at my church too, at any minute. And it makes the church feel like an epitaph on a tombstone. The place is called the unfinished church. And that's the way the church feels to us when we read words like these and then have a good look at ourselves. The church is unfinished. But if that were true, that would mean that Jesus left his work unfinished. 
And that just isn't the case, Paul says. So Paul gives us an overview of Jesus' finished work. To understand Paul's overview of the life and the ministry of Jesus in verses 6 through 11, there are a couple of different outlines to hold in mind. The first you should notice is three stages in the life of Jesus, if that's the right way to say it. It might not be the right way to say it at all, but I don't know how else to say it. So first, there's Jesus in pre-human eternality. Hard to conceive of, yes, but that's what our church believes. He's always existing as God the Son even before His earthly birth. Then there's Jesus in incarnation, His true humanity pictured primarily in the mention of His death on the cross. Though it wasn't the start of His existence, Jesus became truly human. The eternal one who stood outside of time stepped into our world and stepped into our story by his incarnation. And last, there is Jesus in glory. After his resurrection, assumed in verse 9. After his ascension, suggested in verse 9. Jesus is exalted and lifted high and honored. Now, that's a helpful outline, but this one is even better. As Paul gives us his overview of Jesus' life and work, he stops referring to him by name. Jesus is shown in pre-incarnation, but not named. Jesus is shown in incarnation, still not called by name. And then in glory, Jesus is called by the name we've always known him by, but it's different now, it's better and it's bigger Everything is building toward his name. And that's the outline that we want to follow. But Paul starts out by saying, though he was in the form of God, he had the same substance, had the same essence, same quality, the same stuff. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, snatched, taken for himself. And when we hear the word grasped, immediately we're thrown back into the garden where Adam is standing under a tree with juice dribbling down his chin and his heart going hard and dark all at once. Because Adam disbelieved God and he tried to become as God, the text says. Adam reached out of himself and he reached higher than himself. He reached past God to grasp what was not his to take hold of what he did not have to claim as his own by rights. Adam claimed rights he didn't have. And Jesus, on the other hand, well, he did not claim the rights that were properly his. Jesus would not have lost his own divine sonship if he had refused the Father's heart for redemption to sinners through a Savior. Jesus could have said that incarnation and humiliation and suffering did not fit the Son of Eternity. And who could have argued with Him? He could have appealed to His already established standing. But He didn't. Verse 7 says, He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. In other words... 
He did not try to hold on to his name, the name that was already his. Out of love for the Father, not willing to hold rank with the Father, not willing to hold his rightful royalty with the Father, not willing to rival the Father or supplant the Father or even challenge the Father. Jesus was willing to put up his name, to wager it, to degrade his name from prince to servant. It's like changing your name from Rockefeller to Jeeves. Or from Lord Grantham to Mr. Carson. Or Mrs. Hughes. Or worse, Daisy, the fire girl who sweeps ashes and soot from the fireplaces, kindles new fires in the rooms, and has to be out of sight by the time the family sweeps in. And I'm not meaning to offend anyone with this, but I think the analogy holds... It's like changing your name from Warren Buffett to Julio who cleans yards. Or Rosalita who rides a bus into a neighborhood very different from her own. To do the dishes and the laundry and vacuum and dust for a family not hers. He changed his name from looked up to to looked down upon. He did not hold on to the name that he already had. He gave it up. And Paul goes on, being found in human form, in true humanity, remember. He didn't just appear as human. He was human. He entered and left our life by the same doors we must all take. The birthing ward, even if it appeared in the form of a stable and a manger, and a burial plot, even if it was a cave in a garden. He was truly human, and in his humanity, he was better at it than we all are. He understood the full meaning of humanity. He understood our humanity theologically, that our place is humility and worship and obedience, not because we're worthless, but because God is worth so much more. Jesus understood that God is good in His nature and in His works of salvation and governance. He's good in all of His dealings with all people and in His sovereignty over all things. And so convinced of God's goodness was Jesus that He trusted it even as He was pinned to the beams of a Roman cross. He worshipped God's goodness even as life was seeping from Him on a cross. Not at all willing to question or refute, not even for an instant, God's perfection and holiness and beauty and love. He held on to all of them in his heart while spikes of iron and a rack of wood held him away from all of these things. And here's the interpretation of it. Jesus did not try to make a name for himself, not even while his name was being crossed out literally. The Roman historian Cicero says of crucifixion, Far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought and the eyes and the ears of every Roman citizen. The cross means to be scratched out. The cross means in guilt, erased. The cross means nameless, forgotten. 
And all he did, Jesus loved the name of his heavenly father worlds beyond his own name. And that, that alone was such an insult to the rest of us name grabbers that it brought out all of our guilt like hateful armies. But for more worship of the father and more rejoicing in the father's name, Jesus let his own name be crossed out in place of ours. And for all of that, Jesus has given back the name he already had. But it's stronger, it's more powerful, it's more beautiful and moving because it's more meaningful if that's even possible. Given back the name he already possessed, now it's more truthful, more glorious, more celebrated, more lofty because it's a name that was laid down and crossed out for the love of a far greater name that deserved to be magnified. It was a name that was laid down and crossed out for the love of far smaller names who needed mercy and to be lifted up. A royal name that was willing to serve and be humiliated and suffer without ever denying or losing its own character. And so the Father gives him back his perfect name and he wears it even more perfectly. There is no other name with so much put upon it. No other name with so much expected of it. No other name with so much riding on it. No other name to have given so much and to have won so much more with still more to give. So he has the name that no other name will ever surpass or even approach and every soul whether in heaven those who have gone before us the saints who are with him now or on earth those of us who are still here or under the earth those who are in judgment for disbelief and rejection of God's faithfulness and goodness every soul has to see and acknowledge with shouts and songs or shrieks and tears That Jesus has the only name worth trusting and worshiping and following. But Jesus did all of this because he was of one mind, one heart with the Father. It was the Father's place to decree that sinners should be saved and atoned. It was the Father's place to will that a perfect sacrifice should be put up for their debt. It was the Father's place to give the Son the honor of carrying out the hero's work. And it was the Son's place to accept it and do it. It was the Father's place to reveal His heart. It was the Son's place to be the Father's heart. In the Odyssey, Homer's epic poem, my favorite book, Odysseus has been 20 years away from home, his kingdom of Ithaca. Ten years he fought at Troy to bring Helen home to Menelaus, bring her back away from Paris who had stolen her. And then it takes him another ten years to sail home because he's offended Poseidon. And the god of the wine-dark sea is hunting him and wants to destroy him. Meanwhile, back at home, The young nobles of his own kingdom are living in his palace, eating his flocks, eating his crops, drinking his wine. They're even making plays for the hand of his wife 
making proposals to Penelope that she should marry one of them. Telemachus, Odysseus' son, is 20 years old. He's never known his father. He's only known of him. And finally, Telemachus has had enough. And he puts on armor and he takes a spear in his hand and he comes down into Odysseus' great hall and calls all the men of Ithaca together. He wants all the men to hear what he's going to say to these young, thieving nobles. And he tells them, go build your own houses, build your own estates, eat your own flocks and crops, drink your own wine, find your own brides, leave my mother alone. Your place is not in Odysseus' house. But the thing to see is Telemachus is not trying to save his inheritance. He's not trying to preserve some share for himself. He's trying to save his father's house and keep his father's reputation and name intact. He's saving his father's honored place should his father ever return. And Telemachus shines like a hero in the passage that Homer writes for him because he is his father's heart. And that's all you need to know about the ministry of Jesus. That's why he wears the most beautiful name of all, the name that saves and gives and heals and makes whole and makes new. But look, we're stuck with the same problem. Our hearts, our minds are divided against one another. And still we're supposed to be the church the way Paul describes it in this passage. The riddle is still hanging there. So how does a gathering of atoned sinners who still sin, known by the name the church, how do we share one heart? That's what Paul calls the same love in the opening verses. How do we live in full accord? How can we achieve one mind? Well, you don't have to come up with it on your own, Paul says in verse 5. Jesus gives it to you. It's already yours in Christ. And I think that's connected very much to the opening verse. You have the encouragement of Jesus. You are comforted in His love. He has poured His Spirit out to you. His Spirit breathes through you and in you. You have the affection of Jesus. You have all of His sympathy. And now He gives to you His same-mindedness by which He carried out His own ministry. It's important to know all of that, but still, we feel no closer. I had a friend in college who used to say, you know, the world would be a better place if people were more like me. And I want you to know that's the rule that we live by in the world and in the church. This would be a better place if only people were more like me. Now we say, I don't believe that for a minute. Of course you do. If only people would see things the way you see them. If only people would feel the way you feel about things. See, the problem is every time we try to get at one-mindedness, we try to arrive there by subscribing everyone else to my mind. We make ourselves the referent, the starting point. And so for both skeptics and Christians, Jesus is the shared solution to our shared problem. Think about the ways we try to get to one-mindedness. We try to arrive there politically. Each 
side, trying to show how it's better than the opposing side, hoping to win the hearts of people away from the obvious folly and foolishness of the other side. But it's an endless stalemate. Politics is nothing more than the transfer of power, the endless transfer of power through bullying. We'll never have one-mindedness through politics. We try to arrive at same-mindedness through personal demographics, looking the same, having the same preferences, the same prejudices, the same likes, the same dislikes, the same hobbies and interests. Spending all of our time together in the same pursuits, watching the same movies, reading the same books, listening to the same music. And in fact, that is incredibly uninteresting. I don't want to look like you, and I don't want you to mimic me. We would be terribly boring if our life took that shape. And what makes the gospel in Jesus Christ incredibly compelling to broken people living in the world of brokenness by their own making is to see very different people, very different people, joined together, not superficially, but deeply against convenience and inconvenience, against similarity and dissimilarity, against the obvious and all appearances. And here's the real surprise of all of this. We can't even have one-mindedness in the church through piety. Let's just say, let's just imagine for the sake of argument that everyone in the theater this morning holds to the same theology. We hold to the same body of teachings, the same orthodoxy, the same doctrinal standards. And even if that were true, we would still all have very different pieces that speak to us powerfully and other pieces that don't move us at all seem not to make a dent in our hearts, in our thinking, in our emotional makeup. We all take up very different emphases. And after time, every emphasis not tempered turns into a misemphasis. So where's the one-mindedness that we're after? Where's the one-mindedness that the world seeks through platitudes and propaganda and positive thinking? And the one-mindedness, the same-mindedness that the church reads of in Scripture but doesn't believe in at all? How do we get it? By giving up our names by giving up the names we've always had, always answered to, have always been known by. They're awful names, terrible names, but we hold on to them from some twisted comfort because they're all that's familiar to us. Our names by birth and right are names like wounded, outcast, lonely, afraid, disappointing, disappointed, unsatisfied, mistreated misunderstood, which, by the way, is a terrible misnomer. You're not misunderstood. Everybody understands you perfectly well. The only person who misunderstands you is you. Proud, self-sufficient, self-provident, selfish, grasping, taking. 
Oh, we have one-mindedness together by not trying to make a name for ourselves and holding on to that self-made name or salvaging the name that we want to wear for ourselves. That's where all the rivalry and conceit and selfish ambition Paul mentions in verse 3 comes from. Where all of our insistence on our significance over the needs of others originates. It's all wrapped inside our name chasing and building, our name management and maintenance. We need to have our old names with all our deeds of imitation righteousness, our deeds of faux righteousness written underneath those names, crossed out. We need to have our old names with all our deeds of true unrighteousness hanging from them, scratched out with the cross of Jesus. And then we cannot rename ourselves. Our renaming of ourselves never works. The professional basketball player formerly known as Ron Artest, a player with a record, by the way, 2004, he climbed into the stands at a game and attacked fans. He's been charged countless times with domestic abuse. Our test decided that he needed a new image. And so he gave his own image a, a makeover and he renamed himself. His new name is Meadow World Peace. It says it on the back of his jersey. And then last week during a game, after he made a basket... He delivered an elbow to the back of the head of an opposing player and put him on the floor, concussed and unable to play the few remaining games in the season. Mr. World Peace gave a press conference after the incident and he offered a hollow hollow apology and he said he didn't mean anything by it. He just got caught up in the celebration and the excitement of the moment But if you go back and you watch the footage, there's nothing accidental about it. And it's the perfect test case to show us it never works when we we rename ourselves. When we give ourselves names, it just never rings true. It's always vain. It's always misrepresentative. So we need Jesus to rename us. And to live only by the names that Jesus puts upon us. And Jesus always gives us names that are far better than the ones we give to ourselves. He gives us names like redeemed, dead, now alive, lost, now found, prodigal, runaway, brought home, justified, atoned, beloved, fought for. One, beautiful, pure, reconciled, fruitful and sanctified, crucified, dead, risen, endlessly new, exalted by grace, humble but honored, low but lifted high. And by the way, I'll let you in on a little secret. All the vows that we take in the church, membership vows, ordination vows, baptism vows, marriage vows, 
All the vows that we take inside the church are simply a renaming. All of them simply call us to know the depths of our being renamed in Jesus. And they call us to live by our new names in Christ. We would have one mind, we would have the same mind shared among ourselves if, if we could reject the names that we've earned for ourselves or been tagged with, the names that have been smeared, the names that we've tried to repair, the names we've given to ourselves. And if we began to think of ourselves and each other only according to the names that Jesus has earned for us and put upon us. There is no other way to say mindedness. Try all you want. You can't get there. Last week, I was a chaperone for the fifth grade science camp for our school. And during the day, I would accompany a class on ecology field lessons in the forest, in the prairie, out on the water. My job was simple. I had to keep kids from falling behind on nature hikes and help them identify trees and wildflowers and signs of wildlife. I'd help kids canoe the lake and take water samples and dig insect larvae up from the bottom. And then at night and at mealtimes, I had a cabin of nine boys to watch over. My favorite kid in the cabin was the most difficult. He was a sweet kid. Way too much energy. Didn't know when to turn it off. Always in trouble with the teachers. And he and I got on really well. And one morning I was sitting with him at breakfast and he was complaining about a nickname that the other boys in the cabin had given to him. And I said, I'll give you a nickname. I have a name for you. Now I'm not going to tell you what I called him because it's between me and the kid, you understand. But when I gave him the name, his eyes lit up. And he said, yeah, I like that. And I didn't just give him the name. I told him the meaning behind it. I told him, I'm giving you this name because you're always up to something. And a little too eagerly, he agreed. Yeah, I'm always up to something, he said. (laughs) I gave him a name that fit him. And the funny thing is, for the rest of the week, I kept trying to help him outgrow the name I gave him. I tried to help him learn how to steer his way out of trouble before he was neck deep in it. I tried to communicate to him, you don't always have to be up to something because I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm on your side. I'm looking out for you. Anything you need, which I can do, I'm I'm willing to do if it will help you out. I hoped that little by little, maybe that would just begin to turn his heart. And the way he approached his young life. But look, the names that Jesus gives us are just the opposite. We don't ever outgrow them. It moves in the other direction. We can only grow into them. And if, if we started to wear the names that Jesus gives to us, to see ourselves and each other by them, to have our identity only in them, the church might finally begin to look like what Paul describes it as here. We'd have one mind among ourselves. One mind to share. The mind of Jesus that knows no wrong. That settles for no wrong. 
And if we could have one mind by the names that Jesus gives to us, Paul says that it would even do something to our joy in verse 2. But let's not say it. Let's not speak it out loud. That feels like it would cheapen it. Let's just go get it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for all the times we've lived by our broken, old, worn-out names, names that were certainly true of us at one time but cannot be true of us in the gospel. And for all the times we've tried to rename ourselves with names originating from false gospels. We pray, Lord Jesus, By your grace, you'd help us to give up the names we have always known and held to. Let us die to the names that have all of our wrong attached to them. And allow us only to live by the names that speak of the love, the work, the salvation of Jesus the Savior on our behalf. Oh, Lord, if we could only see ourselves the way you see us and begin to know ourselves the way you know us, then we would have more of the gospel to share with each other and to hold out to our neighbors and our city. Give us this one-mindedness and allow us also to be a beacon in our city that broken people can look to and see There must be a Savior who restores what has been damaged and destroyed. There must be a Savior who rebuilds what was lost and unsalvageable. Because look at those people there. If you'll give us that kind of presence, we would have nothing but gratitude. And now stir us to gratitude again as we bring our gifts and thanksgivings. You have loved us and kept us. You provide for us our our every need. You provide for us in every circumstance. Even those of us who have been without work and have had no way to provide for ourselves, still you've kept us. And now it's our privilege to put ourselves in your hands again by bringing gifts and offerings. Show us that our life is in your strength and not in any strength of our own. Help us now, Lord Jesus, as we continue to worship. We ask it all in your name.